0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Spur Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link.
2: link. All right. We're going to open on a good note here. The Guardian has this lovely article about these Queensland graziers who unearthed a 100 million year old plesiosaur remains likened to the Rosetta Stone for its potential to unlock the discovery of several new species of prehistoric giants. Wow. Yeah, this is kind of a big deal. And I did have to look up grazier or grazier because I didn't know what that Mm -hmm. was. But it's basically flock keepers, right? People who tend to sheep or cattle. Oh, like grazing animals. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a group of women in Australia who are also amateur fossil hunters. (laughs) They've named themselves the Rock Chicks, which is highly adorable. They uncovered the fossilized remains of the long-necked plesiosaur known as an elasmosaur Hmm. while searching her western Queensland cattle station in August. And this is the first time that an elasmosaur skull has been found connected to its body in Australia. And okay, why is this such a big deal? Well, the trio had already found another plesiosaur among other significant fossil finds in the weeks leading up to the moment when Cassandra Prince saw a head looking up at her from the dry earth. And this kind of fossil, which has been kept under wraps until now, is globally rare, according to Dr. Espen Knutson, the senior curator of paleontology at the Queensland Museum. So it turns out that Prince was in regular contact with Knudsen at the time of her discovery, and she was sending him pictures of her and her sister Cynthia and her cousin Sally's other finds. But the minute she sent this one, the paleontologist knew it was special because the museum already has the skull of an Elasmosaur in its collection, along with several other bodies. But a skull connected to its body—it's mm, the chef's kiss of paleontology. <laughs> and this largely has to do with the distinctive anatomy of Elasmosaur. So. They're marine reptiles. They probably grew to around eight meters in length, and they had teeny tiny little heads on top of these really long necks. According to Knudsen, quote, a lot of it is neck. At least half, if not two thirds, of the entire body length of an elasmosaur. Is mostly neck. And when an elasmosaur died, its decomposing body would swell with gas that would make it rise to the surface, (laughs) where it would then float at the mercy of tides and scavengers. So we're basically talking about a meters long gap between body and head, means these body parts would rarely sink to the same spot once the gas dissipated. This particular elasmosaur had its skull, neck, and front half of the body all preserved together, but The back half of its body is missing. And when you look at the picture, they've got like the four rock chicks. They're like laying on the ground with it. You can see like the spinal column and like a little piece trailing out of it, almost like in Mortal Kombat when you got one of those (laughs) fatalities. So they're thinking that this particular elasmosaur may have been bitten in half by the apex predator of its day, a 10 meter, 11 ton chronosaur. And this kind of puncture would have caused the rest of the Elasmosaur corpse to sink instantly to the bottom of what was then an inland sea about 50 meters deep. So it's a theory for now, but they will tease it out over the coming years as they hope to unravel the story of this 5 to 7 meter juvenile that they're calling the Little Prince in honor
0: of the person who found it. I mean, I think it's always great when you find, when like a normal person finds a fossil
2: not sure i would call a pair of sisters and their cousins who are professional herdsmen and amateur paleontologists as Ordinary. Like, right. the minute their whole description came to mind, I was like, this is a book series waiting to happen. Yeah. Like, when is the Hulu show coming out?
0: Well, and incidentally, I was a little bit miffed of like, what's the difference between a grazier and a shepherd? And I looked it up. Apparently, a shepherd doesn't necessarily own the animals they're tending to. A grazier is more like a rancher who definitely owns them and will be selling them. So ah. <laughs> it's richer than a shepherd, is what it boils down to, I think. Yeah. So this is more of like an Indiana
2: jones yeah. and the aunties than anything else really. <laughs> <laughs> next link next, next link.
1: link this article comes to us from wired.com and it's titled scammers are scamming other scammers out of millions of dollars Hooray! Well,
0: good. <laughs> yeah, <But> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, cybercriminals using hacking forums to buy software exploits and stolen login details keep falling for cons and are getting ripped off thousands of dollars at a time, a new analysis has revealed. <laughs> and hackers and cybercriminals often gather on specific forums and marketplaces to do business with each other. Matt Wixey, a researcher with Sophos XOps who studies the marketplaces, says, "Scammers scamming scammers on criminal forums and marketplaces is much bigger than we originally thought it was." Wixie examined three of the most prominent cybercrime forums, the Russian language forums Exploit and XSS, plus the English language Breach forums, which replaced raid forums when it was seized by U.S. law enforcement in April. While the sites operate in slightly different ways, they all have arbitration rooms where people (laughs) who think they've been scammed or wronged by other criminals can complain. For instance, if someone purchases malware and it doesn't work, they may moan to the site's administrators. (laughs) Oh, my God. Who are you going to call? Yeah, the mods, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) The complaints sometimes lead to people getting their money back, but more often act as a warning for other users, Wixie says. In the past 12 months, the period the research covers, criminals on the forums have lost more than $2.5 million to other scammers, the analysis says. Some people complain about losing as little as $2, (laughs) while the median scams (laughs) on each of the sites range from $200 to $600, according to the research which is being presented at the Black Hat Europe Security Conference. In one extreme incident on the Exploit Forum, an account posted a lengthy complaint that they had provided someone with a Windows kernel exploit and they hadn't been paid the $130,000 they had agreed for it. (laughs) A translated version of the complaint says at each stage he gave different excuses for delaying the payment. Arguably, the most organized scam stems from an investigation into the Genesis marketplace, which has been online since 2017 and sells hotel login details, cookies, and access to data from compromised systems. When researching Genesis, Sophos discovered a fake version of the website appearing high in Google's search results. Wixie says, this is a really bizarre case. It was a really basic WordPress template and it asked for money, whereas the real Genesis is invitation only. Armed with details from the fake Genesis website, including portions of the text and cryptocurrency addresses, the researchers discovered 20 websites that all appeared to be connected and run by the same group or individual. The researcher says the Bitcoin addresses the scam sites pay into have collectively received $132,000, although he is cautious to say the money may all have come from the false websites. Wixie says that criminals complaining about being scammed and trying to resolve their disputes through arbitration can be a potential rich source of intelligence for investigators. In one scamming complaint, a user shared a screenshot that showed someone's telegram, usernames, email addresses, jabber chat names, plus Skype and Discord names. Going forward, the data could prove a useful tool for tracking down some of the criminals. Wixie says it's certainly a starting point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like those idiots who call 911 to say my neighbor stole my meth. And you're like, do you really want to report that? Like, I don't know. It feels like you're a scammer. You should just respect the game if you got scammed and move on. Complaining about it just feels whiny.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I have personally experienced the subject of this next article, which is called The Great Purpling. Huh. And, Ooh, oh, are you OK? <laughs> well, it's it's talking about this phenomenon that has been happening all over the country for the last couple of years where street lights are suddenly purple instead of white. Have you all seen any Ooh. of these in your neighborhood? No. So in my neighborhood, there is an intersection that is part of some new development, which is a factor, as we'll see in a minute. But it almost looks like somebody put black lights up instead of normal white bulbs. Like it's this very eerie, very purple light. And it's really quite unpleasant to look at, partly because it just looks so (laughs) wrong. You know, you know what it's supposed to look like and it doesn't. And apparently this has been happening all over the country since about 2020. And there is an explanation that does not involve mind control rays or radiation attacks (laughs) or any of the other conspiracy theories that have inevitably cropped up. Oh, good. (laughs) To be fair, not everyone has gone full crazy about it. Some people also thought that it was maybe in celebration of Halloween or because their local football team wore purple. But ultimately, most people have been assuming that it was on purpose, because how else does this sort of thing happen? Mm -hmm. So the answer, it turns out, is LEDs. As you may know from your home light bulb situation, LED bulbs are more expensive at the outset, but they use much less power and last way longer than the old incandescent bulbs. And historically, for a long time, there was actually a roadblock on the development of white LEDs specifically, because Mm. when you're talking about light, white is an additive color, meaning you have to put all the wavelengths together in order to achieve it, right? Mm. And technically speaking, you don't need all the wavelengths, but you do need some from every part of the spectrum, meaning a red Mm -hmm. LED, a green LED, and a blue LED, And we've had red and green for a long time, but the technology for those really narrow wavelengths that would create a blue LED was surprisingly hard, to the point that the guy who finally solved the problem of blue LEDs was awarded a Nobel Prize back in 2014. (gasps) Holy cow! (laughs) Yeah, incidentally, blue LEDs are why we have Blu-ray DVDs. But once we had blue LEDs, some manufacturers said, okay, great, let's put all three in there and sell ourselves a white LED bulb. But other manufacturers realized that blue plus yellow light could actually make an acceptable version of white light, too, as in, like, kind of garish for your house, but good enough for street lights.
1: And Mm. then
0: they realized that they could even achieve the yellow part without an LED at all, but instead by coating a blue LED with a yellow phosphorus layer. And since this design requires just one LED instead of three, it's, of course, much cheaper to produce. And this is where the problem comes in because municipal <laughs> budgets are tight, and there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of streetlights in a given city. So, if they're offered a cheaper bulb, most of them are going to take it. And mm-hmm. over the past decade or so, the LED light business has consolidated to the point that a company called Acuity Brands now dominates the U.S. market. So, everyone's not only buying the cheap LEDs, they're buying the same cheap LEDs. <laughs> It turns out, if you don't do it right, the phosphorus layer on a blue LED is extremely sensitive to heat damage. This (laughs) This can happen. How have I not seen this in Texas yet? I know the factors are there. (laughs) So this can happen because of other defects in the bulb that make the LED hotter than it's supposed to be. But in some cases, even the normal fluctuations of the weather can cause it to happen, meaning in some hotter climates like Texas, the bulbs are showing up purple right out of the box. And probably the reason you haven't seen it is because LED streetlights last for a really long time. And Mm. so you only see it crop up when you put in a new bulb or when you build a new neighborhood and need brand new bulbs Mm -hmm. from scratch. Unfortunately, because of that municipal budget thing, cities are also not too keen on saying, "Ah, I guess we have to toss that one (laughs) in the garbage and buy another one. They're all demanding (laughs) refunds and replacements. And Acuity Brands has been struggling for years now to honor those warranty commitments that just keep cropping up because it turns out a bad bulb was installed back 2017 and they're just Uh now suffering enough cumulative heat damage to turn purple. Uh (laughs) And every time they get asked about it, Acuity says, don't worry, we've isolated the problem. We're going to have all the defective ones replaced in another four to six months tops. But what I know is my neighborhood light has been purple for at least a year. (laughs) So I I
2: don't think we're going to see an end to this
0: anytime soon.
2: I'm telling you, nobody's on the other side of that Zendex email account. Oh, no. Nobody. No. And that's the
0: thing. I'm like, I, to be blunt, I live in a neighborhood where people make their voices heard. They're going to complain if they're unhappy about something. And I know somebody's been complaining about this. And yet it's done nothing. So mm. yeah, we'll be calling them the purple years. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The Mm -hmm. article compared it to like a Prince concert. And I was like, that's a nice way to look at it. This is what woke America looks like. Our streets have gone purple, (laughs) (laughs)
1: y'all.
0: Next link
2: next Next link link. okay we've got a human interest story from people but don't let that kill your interest (laughs) (laughs) this is a story about twins with a history of similar test scores who just won a lawsuit after medical school alleged cheating on exam oh this mm. is juicy okay we've got kayla and kelly bingham they're in their second year of medical school when they were accused of quote signaling one another and passing notes during an exam. And this is all the way back in 2016. But last month, they won their defamation case against the Medical University of South Carolina and were awarded $1.5 million in damages. Wow. They were 24 at the time when they were in their second year of studies at MUSC when they took the test in May 2016. Kelly told the outlet they were given assigned seats about four or five feet apart at the same table, but that they couldn't see each other for the exam. Then they had a faculty member who was remotely monitoring the test-taking, because we all know what a great idea that is, (laughs) and that faculty member noticed the twins were, quote, progressing similarly through their examinations and had many of the same incorrect answers. They also claimed that the proctor had been told to keep an eye on them and took notes on their behavior during the test, noting how they'd, quote, nodded their heads during the examination and occasionally pushed back from their computers, looked around the classroom or shuffled their scratch paper. And then two weeks after that exam, faculty members accused them of cheating. According to the twins themselves, they said there was no signaling and we were just nodding at a question at our own computer screens. Sadly, they were initially found guilty by the school's Honor Council. However, on appeal, the decision was reversed. At that point, the twins thought it had just gone away. But apparently, wherever they went, quote, people would gossip about us and we'd get a cold reception because their reputation was shot, Mm -hmm. right? So the court documents allege that the findings of the Honor Council were leaked to the student body. And due to the ensuing hostility, the twins left medical school altogether and went on to abandon their plans for career in medicine. Quote, it honestly killed me, Kelly told Insider. I dreamed about being a doctor since I was little. Kayla and I wanted to help people. So they withdrew from the school in 2016. They filed the lawsuit in 2017. And during the trial, they had a behavioral genetics expert testify that twins are, quote, genetically predisposed to behave the same way and that cheating complaints against twins are common. Now that I can see. (laughs) This is according to Nancy Siegel, who founded the Twin Studies Center at California State University, Fullerton. Quote, scientific research shows that identical twins have similarities that go far beyond their shared appearance, sometimes due to similar cognitive processes and response times. Sometimes that can be, you know, due to typically being raised in the same environment. But Having similar test scores is a common occurrence among identical twins. They even had another professor who wrote a letter in their defense, and in the letter, the professor reportedly said that the twins had the exact same answers on an exam he supervised in 2012, and that they were sitting on opposite ends of the room at the time. As for what the future holds for these particular twins, Both sisters completed law school last year. Yeah, they graduated with a similar grade point average. And hey, yeah, you know, that's how you get more lawyers in the world. Way to go, guys. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link.
1: link. This article comes to us from science.org and it's titled AI Learns to Write Computer Code in Stunning Advance.
2: Oh, here we go.
1: Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Mm Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it be nice if someone could explain what they want a program to do, and a computer could just translate that into lines of code? A new artificial intelligence AI system called AlphaCode is bringing humanity one step closer to that vision, according to a new study. The software can write code when prompted with an everyday description of what it's supposed to do, for instance, counting vowels in a string of text. When presented with a fresh problem, AlphaCode generates candidate code solutions in Python or C++ and filters out the bad ones. After training, AlphaCode solved about 34% of assigned problems. To further test its prowess, DeepMind entered AlphaCode into online coding competitions. In contests with at least 5,000 participants, the system outperformed 45.7% of programmers. Wow. AI coding might have applications beyond winning competitions. It could do software grunt work, freeing up developers to work at a higher or more abstract level, or it could help non-coders create simple programs. David Choi, another study author at DeepMind, imagines running the model in reverse, translating code into explanations of what it's doing, which could benefit programmers trying to understand others' code. For now, DeepMind wants to reduce the system's errors. Even if AlphaCode generates a functional program, it sometimes makes simple mistakes such as creating a variable and not using it. There are other problems. AlphaCode requires tens of billions of trillions of operations per problem, computing power that only the largest tech companies have and the problems it solved from the online programming competitions were narrow and self-contained. But real-world programming often requires managing large code packages in multiple places, which requires a more holistic understanding of the software. The study also notes the long-term risk of software that recursively improves itself. Some experts say such self-improvement could lead to a superintelligent AI that takes over the world. Although that scenario may seem remote, researchers still want the field of AI coding to institute guardrails, built-in checks, and balances. Even if this kind of technology becomes super successful, you would want to treat it the same way you treat a programmer within an organization. You never want an organization where a single programmer could bring the whole org down. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And speaking as a programmer, I was, I was not messing around with alpha code, but I was messing around with chat GPT and you can mm-hmm. actually just feed it code and ask it to explain it to you. And it can even recommend suggestions for how to improve your code. What? Yeah, it's crazy. Like I just decided to try it and I said, hey, GPT, an- analyze this piece of code and let me know what you think. And it came with like a five bullet pointed list. And like not all of them were correct but most of them were, and Mm. you can generate more of them, like an infinite (sighs) amount, basically.
2: I mean, the way that they've already trained it
0: has built-in editing functions, it sounded like. Yeah, it's that iterative improvement that is essential for making anything, really. Like, people imagine, you know, uh, when you make a sculpture, it's like, oh, you're just immediately doing the final lines, whereas professional sculptors are like, no, you get like a blocky version of it first, Mm -hmm. and then you Mm tighten it here, and then you have Mm -hmm. to redo this bit. It's a process for almost anything and the fact that the computers now know this is... yeah and they can do it quickly and well and like Ugh. it said you don't ever want to leave it to one programmer or one ai nope. so you still need checks and balances like that iterative process of getting multiple opinions and then filtering through to see the common <laughs> <Right.
1: laughs> Yeah human consciousness solved right <laughs> or, or at least intelligence i mean there's an interesting thing here where chat gpt and similar tools definitely seem to be able to replicate human problem solving. If Mm -hmm. not you know imagination or consciousness right because mm-hmm. like they can't just you need a prompt to get it to do anything because that's how it works but i really do see that this could be applied in multiple ways or say you could feed an entire code base to it and say all right make these changes and then it generates a diff for you and you just validate those changes or do a security assessment you know that's a really hard thing to solve but yep. a computer could do that very quickly for you and it would make the world a lot better in general mm-hmm. and you know eventually you might have an a- AI just as like a browser extension or something like that.
2: I mean, before we began recording, we were talking about the video game we're playing, Persona Royal. But if I could have an AI cat buddy who is helping me get through life <laughs> by pointing out when I'm about to make a terrible mistake or there's a good opportunity to take advantage of, take my data, whatever you need, give <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me my talking
0: cat friend. I ain't scared. Bring it, that's fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe this is what truly enables the global panopticon uh, more than it already is, where everybody is just like, this tool is so useful, just put five cameras on me all the time and let it live my life. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I've outsourced my life. Right. As long
0: as it's a cute cat, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, (laughs) cat might have five eyes, it's no big deal. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link.
0: All right. This next article is from the BBC and it's called Revolutionary Therapy Clears Girls Incurable Cancer. Oh, yeah. So it's a super feel good one. The girl in question is Alyssa, a 13 year old from Leicester in the UK, who was diagnosed with T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia in May of 2021. Like all leukemias, it's an especially hard cancer to treat because it is a cancer of the blood, which means it's everywhere. And T-cells in particular are part of your immune system, which means treating it is going to leave you even more vulnerable to infection than most cancer treatments. And if you do beat the cancer, you will then need a bone marrow transplant in order to grow a new immune system. And even though Alyssa did all that, she had the intense chemotherapy, she had a bone marrow transplant, when it was all said and done, she still had cancer. So this is unfortunately usually the point where doctors say, I'm sorry, the best we can do is make you comfortable. But Mm -hmm. instead the doctors at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London offered her the chance to try an experimental treatment that had never been tested on a human before. It's called base editing, and it's a method of genetic modification that was only invented six years ago. Basically, gene manipulation up to this point has involved either high-level changes like switching an entire gene on or off, or splicing out segments of bad DNA and replacing them with segments of good DNA, like CRISPR, right? Mm -hmm. But with base editing you're introducing something called a deaminase enzyme that can simply change the individual DNA bases in place without breaking the DNA backbone. And the key here is that they didn't actually want to modify Alyssa's cells. Instead, using base editing, they were able to create a special T-cell of their own design that was able to go into Alyssa's body and attack the cancerous T-cells for them. This process actually involved four different genetic modifications to the healthy donor T-cells. First, they had to disable the T-cell's natural receptors, which are designed to attack any kind of unhealthy cell in the body and might have therefore attacked Alyssa's normal tissue. Then, they removed its vulnerability to chemotherapy drugs so she could take chemotherapy at the same time and it would not kill these new cells. Next, they removed a particular marker called CD7, which is on all T-cells, and finally, they gave it a new attack receptor that looked for CD7, so that it would be on the hunt for any T-cell that wasn't one of these modified T-cells with the CD7 removed. So Alyssa's mom, Kiona, said that when the doctors explained the idea, her only thought was, you can do that? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) They also explained that it had never been done before, and the choice to try it or not was Alyssa's. She said yes, so they injected her with millions of these modified T-cells in May of 2022, (sighs) and one month later, she was in full remission wow they then gave her another bone marrow transplant and as of now seven months after the treatment her cancer has not returned oh and so amazing i know it's fantastic and while Alyssa was the first there are already nine other people with her specific type of leukemia that are in the process of receiving this therapy and so far their results are also looking really promising what's more because base editing is just a process by which you can modify pretty much anything it can also be applied to countless other diseases and situations. Mm -hmm. Sickle cell anemia, for example, is a disease caused by exactly one base mutation. And there are already trials of base editing underway for sickle cell patients, as well as some trials for people with genetically high cholesterol and another blood disorder called beta thalassemia. So it seems like they're really focusing on blood for right now. Mm -hmm. But you can imagine it's going to go anywhere. I mean, there's so much you can do with this. As for Alyssa... She's busy looking forward to Christmas, being a bridesmaid at her aunt's wedding, going back to school, and quote, just doing normal people stuff. So, normal people stuff. Yeah, Aww. there you go. I brought you a Christmas miracle. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, science. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link.
2: link. Well, science isn't done giving out the gifts, although this one's a bit more of a press release, but <laughs> nevertheless, nextgov.com has reported that NASA has awarded 57 million dollar contract to build roads on the moon. You know, Joni Mitchell had it right. I mean,
0: I guess somebody's got to do it, and you might as well
2: pick them now, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it sounds almost a little like, oh, here we go, but we kind (laughs) of need this infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. So in an effort to meet this need, NASA has awarded ICON, which is an advanced construction technology company best known for 3D printing homes. Hmm. They just got a $57.2 million contract to develop construction technology to build infrastructure on the moon, including landing pads, habitats, and roads. So it's a little bit more than roads. (laughs) The contract goes through 2028. This contract is under phase three of NASA's Small Business Innovation Research Program. So what they're going to do is they'll use a lunar gravity simulation flight to bring its technology into space. The company will also utilize samples of lunar rigolith, a layer of debris covering the moon's surface, to examine the behavior in simulated lunar gravity. This is going to help inform how they actually approach construction. Icon noted that the technology will help establish the critical infrastructure necessary for a sustainable lunar economy, including eventually longer-term lunar habitation very PR speak. Mm -hmm. To change the space exploration paradigm from there and back again to there to stay. Oh, I can just hear the marketing execs who (laughs) earned their bonuses this year. Patting themselves on the back. Oh, boy, howdy. We're going to need robust, resilient and broadly capable systems that can use the local resources of the moon and other planetary bodies. This is according to ICON co-founder and CEO Jason Ballard. Quote, the final deliverable of this contract will be humanity's first construction on another world. And that is going to be a pretty special achievement. So I found it kind of interesting. I mean, like they're a 3D printing company. They're going to be using the local resources of the moon and other
0: planetary bodies. Well, I mean, you have to. You're not going to (laughs) be bringing concrete up there. You're going to need to say, okay, how can we make concrete out of regolith? So that, Mm -hmm. I mean, it all sounds great. I agree it's kind of annoying that everybody's got to have a press release. But my hat's off to the headline writer of this, because when you talk about, you know, (laughs) habitats and roads, roads are the thing that make everybody go, wait, what? That's like a suburb. That's not, oh, there's a capsule with a couple of astronauts inside it. That's a thing we've never envisioned. So yeah, picking out roads is the thing is absolutely the way to get people to look twice and be excited about this. Yeah, roads
2: mean this is being used on a regular basis. If it's just like a landing or a launch pad or just a little satellite station on the moon, then the idea is it's there when you need it.
0: But the streets, the roads Mm -hmm. are like, we're here for a while, which is just mind blowing to think about. And you know what they're going to have, don't you? White streetlights. They're not going to be suckers (laughs) who fall into purple streetlights. That's $57 million. They can afford good streetlights, is what I'm saying. (laughs) But we got to save
2: somewhere. You know, that concrete is not cheap to export onto the moon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com. It's titled All South Koreans to Become Younger as Traditional Age System Scrapped.
0: Whoa, Excellent. I have always thought this was so stupid. And I don't want to be like, you know, cultures do things differently. But oh, my God, what an incredibly stupid system they've had. Anyway, go ahead and explain it.
1: (laughs) So with that preface, uh, South Korea (laughs) is to scrap its traditional method of counting ages and adopt the international standard, a change that could knock one or two years off people's ages on official documents, but could take time to seep into daily life. South Koreans are deemed to be a year old when they're born, and a year is added every January 1st. The unusual and increasingly unpopular custom means a baby born on New Year's Eve becomes two years old as soon as the clock strikes midnight. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. The complications do not end there. A separate system exists for calculating the age of men entering national service and the legal age to drink alcohol and smoke. In those cases, a person's age is calculated from zero at birth and a year is added on New Year's Day. The tradition has attracted criticism from politicians who believe it makes South Korea appear behind the times. The president, Yoon Suk-yeol, has criticized the multiple methods for calculating ages as a drain on resources. The confusion should end in June, at least on official documents, when laws stipulating the use of only the international method of counting ages take effect. Yoo Sang-bum of the ruling People Power Party told Parliament, the revision is aimed at reducing unnecessary socioeconomic costs because legal and social disputes as well as confusion <laughs> persist due to the different ways of calculating age. Mm-hmm. Jiang Da Yun, a 29-year-old office worker, said she welcomed the change since she always had to think twice when asked her age when overseas. <laughs> she said, I remember foreigners looking at me with puzzlement because it took me so long to come back with an answer. <laughs> The system's origins are unclear. One theory is that turning one year old at birth takes into account time spent in the womb, with nine months rounded up to 12. Others link it to an ancient numerical system that did not have the concept of zero. Hmm. Explanations for the extra year added on January 1st are more complicated. Some experts point to the theory that ancient Koreans placed their year of birth within the Chinese 60-year calendar cycle, but at a time when there were no regular calendars, tended to ignore the day of their birth and simply added on a whole year on the first day of the lunar calendar. The extra year on January 1st became commonplace as more South Koreans began observing the Western calendar. Hmm. While some people are expected to continue using their Korean age in daily life, others said they were delighted by the prospect of turning back the clock. One tweeted, I'm getting two years younger. I'm so happy. I turned two years old so soon after I was born, as I was born in December. Finally, I'm about to get my real age back.
0: Yeah, I mean, I imagine some people are resentful because it's like, oh, you're allowed to drink. Oh, psych, you're not allowed to drink again. <laughs> like, but But yeah, for the most part, it absolutely boggles my mind that this system has lasted as long as it has. And... <laughs> as someone who cares about numbers it infuriates me so i'm really glad this is good news i'm happy has this ever affected you directly (laughs) no no there's absolutely no reason i should feel this worked up about it i just when i first learned about it i don't know it was probably 10 years ago i read something somewhere they're like oh this is the system in south korea and i'm like this has got to be a joke nobody does this and they were just like no no this is how we calculate age and i was like you can't have a functioning society where a two-day-old baby is in class with two-year-olds. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway. Dogs and cats living together. Exactly. Total (laughs) anarchy. So, you know, good. I I, I have one less thing to be angry about now in the world. Yes. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Edison's Inadvertent Folly, How This Mushroom Savant Identifies Fungi, and You're Being Lied To About Electric Cars. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.